0: This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts.
1: All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast covering all topics on the intersection of finance and energy. This is your host, Hill Baden, and we are doing things a little bit differently this week by airing a client webinar that we recorded on November 18th, titled Road from COP26, Evaluating the Glasgow Pact. Regular listeners know we did several episodes leading up to the UN Climate Conference, which had the unenviable burden of high expectations. Broadly speaking, post-event reaction has been mixed So you'll hear relative optimism from our team, which interprets implications as a sort of good cop, bad cop situation. In terms of good cops, please pay attention to the discussion around the potentially transformational agreement on Article 6, which assigns value to a ton of carbon at a level other than zero and establishes a framework for carbon as a globally tradable commodity. We believe carbon offset trading is now poised to surge over the coming years. So please enjoy as I hand off to IHS market climate and finance experts, Roger Dewan, Peter Gardette, and Paul McConnell for further discussion. And if you like what you hear, please share feedback with us at energy sense at ihsmarket.com. Thanks so much and enjoy. Hello. Good morning. This is Roger Dewan speaking
2: from uh, Washington, D.C. today, and I'm joined by uh, Peter Gardette and Paul McConnell uh, from New York and uh, Edinburgh to discuss uh, what happened at the COP26 and what are uh, our main uh, views and conclusions. Thank you all for joining. We have an inbox for questions, so you can put your question as we go. Uh, This discussion will last uh, 30 minutes. We'll try to keep it uh, to the dot. So uh, let's get going. Uh, First, I would say the broad general conclusion of COP that if you were expected you were expecting a big headline of one big agreement success, uh, you'd be disappointed. But I don't think that was the expectation. And uh, in many ways, what we've seen here is a much more subtle set of conclusions. So let's start with that big headline conclusion. We haven't seen one, we didn't expect one. Peter, how do you see that as a, uh, a success of a failure in that extent, to that extent?
3: Yeah, so we divided this kind of conceptually into good cop, bad cop. Uh, in a way, you could say that the uh, bad cop was the the actual cop itself, the political gathering under the auspices of the UN, and that the good cop was across the street at the uh, gathering of, you know, financial firms, companies, emitters that are there to actually kind of do business. In a way, the the bad cop piece is overselling that because agreeing to keep talking is in a way a a victory of its own on something as contentious as reducing emissions throughout over 100 different major economies, all of them with different priorities and timelines to uh, continue to adhere to the, the map that the Paris Agreement has set out is actually, to my mind, not a terrible outcome from the The bad cop, the political side. The good cop on the financial and corporate side, though, is remarkable. I think we were, it really exceeded our expectations. Mark Carney brought together his group of kind of global capitalists in in the form of the Glasgow uh, Financial Alliance for Net Zero. You know, that $130 trillion number removes all doubt about the access uh, to capital for uh, climate adaption. The Article Six agreement that closed the conference with a bang, I think, has uh, been very undersold. It looks like a failure, but actually feels like a success. Yeah, we'll come back to and that. Then through, yeah, and throughout the conference, we saw these kind of bilateral and sectoral agreements, uh, any one of which would have been a major uh, headline at another time. I think it's just that our expectations were so high for a universal agreement because there's such a sense of crisis around this so i think in both cases we had it we saw a lot of progress on the financial side they really blew away our expectations
2: okay so uh, i tried to categorize a little bit all of these things uh in in three buckets correct uh, failures uh big advances and uh real success uh, so on the failures let's not uh, uh pass over those i think on the resolution on coal was underwhelming Uh, The main producer and consumers are not in. So that's on the failure side. Uh, Tightening the NDCs, we didn't see that happening. The financing of emerging markets, the $100 billion promise, still not there. And this potential advance about creating public-private financing to de-risking investments as a solution to the 100 billion also was not adopted. So in that sense, also not a great success. Paul, what what do you think about that bucket in a, in a way of failures from what you Yeah, mean, I mean, I,
4: I agree. I think it's a good way of characterizing it. So uh, on the NDCs, to start with, first, it's kind of the, the, the headline really about these climate uh, agreements, so really, at least the Paris Agreement was designed to limit global warming to no more than two degrees above pre-industrial levels, and, and if, if, if possible, hit 1.5. And we've heard a lot of talk about 1.5 and net zero in the lead up to the talks. But the fact is that the Paris Agreement was never really strong enough to, to actually deliver that outcome. So COP26 was supposed to be a venue for uh, countries to tighten their emissions promises and to try to move us onto that 1.5, 2-degree track, but the commitments made in Glasgow over the last several weeks did underwhelm, and it looks um, from our estimations that we're currently on a probably plus 2-degree track, you know, 2.2, 2.4, somewhere in in that regard. So, you know, to use the kind of jargon of the conference, 1.5 is still just about alive, but it's probably on life support. But as Peter says, you know, we are agreeing to keeping moving forward. And If I reflect on The last COP, which had so much weight, so much expectation placed on it in Copenhagen in 2009, that one was certainly a failure and kind of really put back the conversations around climate for many years, in fact, until the Paris Agreement came along in 2015. So we're moving forward, but we're sort of, you know, starting to close the window between uh, what can be achieved uh, through this UN process and, um, and, and some of the kind of climate targets that we're trying to get to.
2: Yeah. What about the next setting? The next two Cops, and in a way, potentially moving to a more annual. I mean, we have an annual, but a pledging annual uh, uh, target.
4: Yeah. So the nationally determined contributions, the NDCs, they were established in Paris. There was supposed to be this five yearly update cycle. Uh, COP was, you know, the the first of those. But we've now, post COP twenty six, emerged with this, you know, promise to to or urge, in fact parties have been urged to come back to the table with new NDCs this time next year. So in advance of COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Now, that's new, that's notable, and it probably, although this is not totally determined yet, it will probably be an annual revision process. So that's, you know, that's welcome. Pressure will be put on every year, but the question remains what will actually have to change to bring the holdouts who haven't pledged more back to the table in 12 months' time or 24 months' time in order to kind of close that gap.
2: Yeah, thanks. So let's move on to uh, please, what we would call the advances and the wins. So uh, I would characterize as in the advances the emission offset trading and resolution somehow of Article 6 and the China-US declaration to cooperate on climate and even if they're not into these global packs, but at least they're strategically moving together. And on the wins, a, a set of sectoral agreements, which really matter each in itself, because there are great advances. We've seen it in the financial summit and GFEND, and we'll link that a little bit to the advances on emission trading. But I think that financial side is the real success. And the sectoral agreement on methane, on steel and aluminum uh, between the U.S. and Europe, on forestry, and on the deal we did on South Africa, for example, so we can pick and choose some of these big wins. But let's talk about first the big advances around Article 6 and emission. And I know, uh, Peter, you're quite excited about it. So this is, uh, for you, it's a big success. And tell us first what it is, and two, why you see it as such a big success
3: yeah so just two seconds of history. The economists have always favored the idea of a single carbon price, and I think uh, there 's been a lot of political uh, capital invested in that over the years. This idea that there would be a single down a top down carbon you know price that would reflect greenhouse gas emissions building up in the atmosphere because this is a global problem on a physical uh, on a physical front. It it works in theory, but is actually not very realistic in terms of how markets or or money functions and how how prices are discovered. So incredibly, the UN and these uh, organizations learned their lesson from the Kyoto Protocol. And that's very encouraging to see. Under the Kyoto Protocol, we had this kind of top-down UN-administered program that was supposed to replicate a market function and didn't really work. And the kind of Success through tactical disappointment, as I've called it before, in about this Article 6 agreement is in that bilateral climate club approach. You have countries agreeing with each other to accept each other's certification of carbon offsets and uh, thereby kind of forming networks of price information that will lead to Things like forests being revalued as uh, having some kind of value that's above the value of the, the wood or the land asset, it will have a carbon value. The reductions themselves on the industrial front will have a carbon value. It will probably start out as too low, and there's a lot of controversy around the grandfathering in of a bunch of the Kyoto Protocol CRs, as they call them, the offsets from that program into the new program. But we now have a deadline. 2030, we can expect a large-scale, functional, you know, sufficiently global carbon market that we've been talking about for 20 years to be in place. And to me, that that's astounding work. I think that we're going to have a very busy seven years as we uh, work across, you know, national regulators and within banks and within companies to really build the architecture there. But the roadmap is that this connects the demand and the supply in a way that's very exciting.
2: Yeah, Paul, on the other side, do you think that the, including the old carbon offset from the Kyoto protocol into this market, is this the big drag or is it something manageable in the future?
4: yeah it it's probably not ideal i mean there was a, a lot of a, a lot of fairly questionable credits produced over over that period but it is only uh a CERs that were produced after 2013 um, so i think you know the the numbers are probably up for debate i've seen some sort of fairly uh, broad estimates about how many there are um that could come into the system and yes it could be a drag uh, but i think if it's the you know, the the price of getting parties on board to get this agreement in place. And as Peter says, this is a big success, right? We've never really had a, a market that looks like this. The Kyoto system was really, you know, fairly flawed and you really only had a kind of a, a demand center from, from Europe. So, you know, this is, is something that is quite different and I think will serve to help link some of these nascent uh, schemes that we're seeing develop uh, in in many regions of the world and also link up the voluntary markets too. So we're on the way, right? We're not there yet, but as uh, Peter says, we're we're definitely moving in the right direction.
2: Yeah. Peter, one of your uh, argument here is that actually there is demand this time around and you have a financial community. which. Going to pour into this new commodity, and to because of the new financial instrument that could be very large, correct?
3: Yeah, climate risk has made its way into portfolio pricing, whether you like it or not. I think that you see that first in the longest dated investment horizons. So anything kind of past five years, particularly for a European investor, you're starting to see transition risk get priced in, and even in many cases, insurance companies are kind of being greenlit by their own regulators to begin including the physical risk that they have long been warning about. So physical and transition risk are being priced in at the asset level, whether it's the physical asset or the financial instrument. And as that happens, you need a mechanism on the other side, kind of in the real world, if you like, that can help you, uh, guide you in your decision making. And we've never had that before. We've always kind of had to do guesswork to kind of look at the shadow carbon price and say, well, if this, equity or, or bond is priced differently than this other equity or bond that must reflect what a carbon price might be, now we will really have that information. And even if it's imperfect to start and even if it's depressed at the beginning by the inclusion of CERs or poor market design, over time, I think you're going to see a lot more uh, this kind of structured market developing. It's very similar in a way to sovereign debt, say, where you have you know networks of uh, of trade that uh, work with each other very well, and and really pass a lot of very valuable price information into financial instruments and thereby into investment horizons. And that's what we've been talking about. I mean, there's 130 trillion dollars, which is admittedly a kind of insane number, but is the only one that's ever come close to what groups like the IEA say is actually necessary here. So I think so we're finally that's more about $130, 130
2: billion. So. You know, we're saying one of the key success here is that financial summit, that there was real dynamism around that, around the financial solution to a lot of these problems and the the financial community coming into that discussion and providing, in a way, a different pathway than the government top-down regulatory approach to solve decarbonization. What we're seeing here is a bottom-up, maybe imperfect, but capital approach to the problem and, in a way, this COP brought that to the forefront maybe before i go to you actually uh paul you went there so maybe you can give us just a, a sense of the what's going on what what was the Air well, I mean, or, uh, I,
4: I I think the, the the mood was was quite different. So on one side of the city, you had the you know the, the the sort of UN center of negotiations behind steel fences, protesters outside, you know, all the the usual kind of thing. And you know, the news coming out from that was at the time when I went there fairly fairly downbeat. You know, this is pre Article Six. It didn't look like there was going to be much agreement. You know, things weren't looking pretty rosy. But on the other side of town. Private events, um, lots of finance folks gathering. The mood was completely different. Very much, everybody's on board with net zero and climate risk exposure, and and all of these uh, you know exciting new things. So I think the finance community is definitely here. It's not kind of you know COP is almost a venue or a, or a platform now uh, for this, and I think that's going to continue into COP 27 and, and beyond. There was certainly a sense that this is the beginning. Or of something rather than uh, something which is sort of uh, winding down. So I think the momentum probably is shifting to the private sector away from what can be achieved uh, within the, the framework of the, the UNFCCC. However, I do think that the, the kind of two things at the moment are probably uh, symbiotic to a degree. One can't really exist without the other. And, uh, you know, despite maybe the sort of limited or perhaps underwhelming Conclusion of the the conference as a whole, ex Article Six. I think that the, you know, it, it is there and it will continue to provide a platform for for the finance folks going forward. Thanks. Uh,
2: so uh, let, let's go back to you, Peter, about what is GFANS and the 130 trillion dollar. Correct. This is a, a group of uh, asset manager, banks, pension funds, etc., asset owners saying that collectively they manage 130 trillion dollar that could at least a large portion of it, put into decarbonization. So tell us first what that represents as a coalition, what's the weakness, and what's what it means in terms of the demand.
3: Yeah, uh, so this is a real credit to Mark Carney, who has spent the last two years since uh, leaving the, the Bank of England as kind of the single cheerleader coordinator international diplomat for finance, I don't even know what to call him, the leader on this subject, and has brought together this collection of several hundred different global organizations. We are missing some of the, say it's region heavy, so it's very US uh, and Europe heavy in terms of the institutions that are represented. And that's meaningful, but I think that's also kind of, you know, his background and where global capital frankly resides. The net zero approach is one that has been very widely adopted within the financial community and it gives them a lot of runway and that's something that I think uh, activists sometimes complain about. It gives them until 2050 to get to the point where they're net zero even and not uh, totally zeroed out so you could still see a certain number of emissions with carbon credits or offsets or or some form of uh, displacement like that. But at the same time, It's a pretty firm commitment to get everyone on board and to say, with you know, my competitors are going to be doing this, I have to be doing this. The demand from investors is there, and this goes to a fundamental truth about this that finance hates large scale, unpriced risk. I mean, if you can price the risk, you can manage it. In order to manage it, you have to see it. I think we've got to the point where we have. Uh, are able to see the risk you know we have a lot of devices we have a lot of mechanisms for being able to see the risk. Carbon offset's only one tool for pricing it, and then you can price it, you can see it you 're beginning to manage it. All you need then really is a regulatory path, and the assets again switch to invest clean tech uh, you know is definitely providing those assets and we 're seeing just this rush to to fulfill that investor demand. And then the regulatory piece is the kind of gap that's missing. But as we see climate risk reporting and uh, Federal Reserve risk weighting, for example, you know, I think those that tool set is going to be there, too. It's an interesting one because it doesn't require a political solution in the in the customary sense. It, politics can go sort of speed this up or slow it down, expand its scale or or narrow it, but it is being driven by fundamental appreciation of risk in the market.
2: Okay, so we're seeing what I would call a techno finance solution coming together. The other big advancement I I think we saw that we need to talk about is the set of sectoral uh, agreements, correct? So we had a very important agreement on methane. We can talk about 30% lower by 2030. And I think in certain areas, we probably can do better than that. So again, putting solution on specific sector, we see a forest agreement, maybe Paul, you can say two words about that. Uh, We had an interesting advance on what I would call that uh, solution for South Africa. Uh, Maybe you can say a few words about that. But in general, that Push into finding sectoral agreement between the big players rather than finding an overarching agreement. I think is important because it means that we can constantly be, be moving in certain areas. Who, who wants to, to to start on the sectoral? Maybe Paul on, uh, on on methane and in general on sectoral agreements.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it, the, the in general it does speak to this sort of two COP process, or or at least there's a, there's the kind of at cop and there 's of cop right, and these were, were at cop but not of cop, so we, you know we 've got the agreement on methane to cut uh, by thirty percent we 've got uh, you know a commitment to end deforestation by two thousand and thirty great on the face of it, um, definitely progress, however, you know slightly dig under the under the hood a little bit on both agreements. there are potentially issues you know Brazil and Indonesia on the on the forestry uh, agreement came out quite quickly and said that you know their participation had maybe been. A little bit overstated, or, or, or you know, um, or, or maybe not quite interpreted correctly. And then again, on the on the methane, some of the largest methane emitters aren't on board. However, you know, it's it, it's progress, right? And we've also seen the U.S.-China bilateral, you know, other pieces of progress. And I do I do think it sort of again frames this idea that you know, the COP process becomes a venue for other more focused, potentially more impactful agreements to, to be struck alongside this sort of UN process.
2: Peter, what, what do you think about the South Africa Fund? And maybe you can give us two words. And again, here, it looks to me like a techno-financial solution uh, on, on a specific problem. But that approach is quite interesting when you contrast with the failure of a more, more on a broader agreement on emerging markets.
3: Yeah, I mean, what we're talking about here is really coalitional agreements, coalition building politics in a way. And this was one area where, you know, we didn't see the direct MDB involvement in the same way, but is a similar kind of thing where you're getting, you know, developed nation, you know, historical emitter capital that is supporting change within what we might think of as a middle income still developing economy that is facing a very specific challenge that requires a very rigorous solution. You know, South Africa is a coal country, you know, that's tied up in its identity. The coal mining unions are very powerful. The coal sector is very powerful. At the same time, it's aging infrastructure. It's been in place for decades. It needs to be replaced. They've suffered a wide array of blackouts, power crises over the recent years. And at the same time, it sits right at this network, there is a functional you know South, southern Africa power market that links through South Africa. So you have this kind of series of problems and interest groups together, and uh, you know what is frankly in terms of the global energy sector, a comparatively small sum of money to clean the whole thing up you know twenty five billion dollars. That goes a long way. That's the same price as you know a few offshore deep well, deep sea rigs or something like this. Is you start to get a, a really a lot of bang for your buck when it comes to replacing the South African infrastructure. Doing so with de-risked uh, capital from places where the capital is comparatively cheap and a lot of you know uh, by cleaning that up, they clean up not just South Africa's grid but the entire. Sort of southern uh, part of Africa grid in a way that is is very useful.
2: Yeah, I think that alliance uh, building on specific project in a way uh, we'll see a lot more, and especially with these new COPs coming in uh, in Egypt in 22 and in uh, Abu Dhabi. Uh, following that. I think uh, both will work hard to build coalitions to do, to have big announcement, at least of regional in Africa and the Middle East, et cetera, a type of alliance on specifics. So I think there is a movement here that uh, once it starts, we don't know how it ends, but it goes somewhere. To finish, I wanted to talk about the biggest one that you uh, can I alluded to, uh, uh, Paul, which was the U.S.-China declaration followed by the biden she summit a couple of days ago. Again, nothing really concrete, but a willingness on both to say these are strategic interests we have in common and we want to find areas of cooperation there. Uh, and I think that's quite important because there is a lot hinging on that relationship, both in terms of the global politics, but also on manufacturing and trade around clean tech, et cetera. So Peter, how, how do you look at that how much is it declarative versus at least the beginning of a pathway?
3: It's very, we're very much at the beginning of the pathway. On the other hand, I do think the kind of, the roadmap has been set. You know, I think that there was the remarkable thing about Paris was that you could get this many uh, entities to agree that this was both a problem and required targets and common solutions. And that this really was an instrumental cop. you know, it really focused on what instruments we're going to use to get to that point. And yeah, we're, you know, whether or not we hit the, the temperature guidelines, which, you know, it requires taking a number of different views, not just on politics and policy and targets, but also on technology and how fast finance can advance technology to get there. The world looks a lot different now than it did 30 years ago and could look substantially different again in 30 years
2: so i see that both of you are uh, glass half full here uh, coming out of glasgow uh i don't know if you're always uh optimist but uh, paul you've been uh, working on climate for some time how how, how do you put that in context
4: yeah, I mean, I I'm not always a glass half full kind of person, but I do think that the this this is not, you know, I, I was worried that this was going to be a binary cop in the sense that if we didn't get an agreement, the whole thing was going to fall apart. And I don't think we've seen that. We've probably got just enough done in order to keep the the show moving along. I said, you know, is is 1.5. Alive, yes, I do think it is. You know, the, the the sort of gradient between you know where we are and where we need to get to is going to get steeper and steeper every year. But there is an opportunity here to keep moving forward. And I think, given all of these other initiatives happening off the books, given the progress of clean tech, given you know the embedding of of things like renewables and EVs and efficiency into the into the economy at large, I think that the um, you know the policy framework. It will hopefully continue to sort of to to move forward. But, um, you know, I think even if it it sort of underwhelms in terms of the targets we get every year, I do think it's really important to kind of keep keep this framework moving and keep uh, and and remain established as a venue for for keeping climate at the forefront of the of the risk agenda.
2: Yeah, Uh, Peter, last question for you, in a way, uh, since you've been looking a lot at the financial side, we believe in a way that the UN has created a framework, but now we're moving into a very different phase where it's a lot of these sectoral agreement and financial solutions to the problem there rather than uh, top down. It's going to get messier, but in many ways is getting a lot more interesting from a business standpoint.
3: Absolutely. I think there's going to be an enormous amount of activity. In a way, there's been a lot of the work to understand the problem set has now been done, and we're in the kind of known unknowns phase. You know, We're no longer guessing at what the climate could look like. We're no longer guessing about the physical ramifications. We no longer even have to really ask the question, which instruments do we need and what do they need to look like? The question we're asking is what this looks like in practice, and increasingly we're getting uh, information about what that looks like, and that's where I really expect the the focus to be over the coming five years is on practice. right.
2: So again, uh, in our conclusions, uh, we had said before that, you know, 65% of decarbonization can happen within the existing technology. What we're looking here is really implementation and the messy side of implementation and building uh, coalitions and uh, getting the funds. So I I, I would say it's going to get quite interesting for us. Uh, thank you both for this conversation. Uh, I, I hope uh, our uh, listeners enjoyed and I think we will uh, continue on that vein and uh, we'll come together to discuss these uh, sectoral movement uh, from time to time. Thank you. Have all a good day. Bye bye.
0: To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash you can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense@ihsmarket.com. at ihsmarket.com.
1: This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's I-H-S-M-A-R-K-I-T forward slash energy.